Well, this may be your first time here at Hope Church, or maybe it's everybody's first time this year. Um, but uh, we're doing something very different this year as a church. We're going to go through the Bible this year. So uh, we'd love you to join us. Uh, but what, we're really, what we really want you to do individually is to take this book and do this daily to reflect on it, to read it, and to allow it to soak into your soul because we think it will make an incredible difference in your life, your relationships, everything. Now, we have a plan. This is a, a reading plan. If you have like an old school Bible, I mean, you might have you know, a phone or uh, an iPad or something like that, that or your computer that you use. But if you use the old school, we have these. We ran out last week. We had 300, and they're gone, but we printed some more. So if you go to the Connection Center, you can get one of those today and take it home with you. And It's not dated. You can start any time you want. Um, and I would encourage you. We're, we're really not that interested that you actually read every word of the Bible as much as we're more concerned that you allow the Bible to soak into your life and your heart, your soul. This morning, what we want to do is we want to talk about Genesis. And I'm going to actually spend the whole month in the book of Genesis because it's such a critical book and such a pivotal book for the rest of the Bible. My thought is if you get the book of Genesis right, the rest of the Bible will make a whole lot more sense. If you get it wrong, you're going to be kind of lost. And so that's why I think it's so important that we do that. Um, but before we talk about Genesis, let me talk about the Bible just for a minute. Don't think of the Bible as a book. Think of it as a binder. It has 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. And between the Old Testament book of Malachi and the First Testament book, the New Testament book of Matthew, there's 400, we call them silent years, because there's no, there's no books written during that time that are canonical books or books that are found in the Bible. So you have 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, and then there's a 400 uh, period silent gap. 39 books, 27 books. It is written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 authors, and it has one unified compelling theme. And it's really important that you understand it that way. So when you come to the scripture, think of it that way. Think of this book as a binder of many books. Secondly, as we look at the book of Genesis, it is composed of 50 chapters, and it's really broken into two parts, chapters 1 through 11, uh, which really deals with four events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. Those are the four events. And then we come to chapter 12, which is a pivotal chapter in the whole book of Genesis, and right there is where God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And the rest of the book is about Abraham and his descendants. And so we have four events in the first 11 chapters, but then 12 through 50, we have four people. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham's son is Isaac, Jacob, Isaac's son, and so on, Joseph. Um, so that's the book of, of Genesis. Key passages in the book of Genesis uh, Genesis 3.15, we're going to look at that next weekend and talk about the implications of that. Genesis chapter 12, probably the key chapter uh, in the book of Genesis, maybe in all of the Old Testament. 
It's just an incredibly important chapter. It's where God makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And then in uh, three weeks, we're going to talk about Genesis 50, verse 20. And, and in that statement there, Joseph makes to his brothers an incredible, it has incredible implications for our lives and, and uh, about what's, what's going on and how do you deal with hard times and how do you deal with treachery and, and, and is God in all of this? And, and so we're going to look at that. So that's where we're going to be. But this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at the first two chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. And many people, as they study the book of Genesis, as they read through it, they get lost in a lot of this, what I think is sideways energy. For instance, are the days 20, uh, the seven days of creation, are they literally 24-hour days? Is Genesis 1, you know, is Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 1, 3, in that gap there, is, is it describing a, a, a recreation of a lost world? Is science and Genesis 1 in conflict with one another? I mean, if I believe in the Bible, does that mean that I have to throw my brain out? And, and is there there's this, there's this conflict between science and the book of Genesis? Uh, does Genesis support evolution? Well, these are interesting questions. But they're not the concern of Genesis. Genesis has no concern at all of the, any of these questions. It, here's the key point, and I have this in your notes. I checked to see. <laughs> I thought I did, but I wanted to make sure. And, and to me, this is a really important principle as you approach this book. And remember, the whole point of this series, the whole point of this year, is that you'll take this book individually, and you'll open it up like that, and you'll read it for yourself. But here's the key point. The Bible isn't written to you. It's written for you. And it's a key distinction that's very important to understand. It's not written to you, it's written for you. And I'll explain what that means. Genesis was not written to address our burning scientific questions. In fact, the Israelites would have never asked, they would have never pondered these questions. They had a very different view of the cosmos than we do. For example, this is their view of the universe. This is their view of the world around them, of the stars and the sky and the earth. They didn't know the stars were suns. They didn't know the earth was round and moving through space. They didn't know the sun was further away than the moon. They believed that the sky was material just like land. They didn't have rockets and satellites and telescopes. And here's the interesting thing. In all of this, God wasn't concerned with changing their view of the universe, of the cosmos. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, concerned to say, oh boy, you know, you have this whole idea of the universe. It's all messed up. We've got to straighten you out somehow. It'd be like an adult trying to explain to a seven-year-old how a, a, an internal combustion engine works. Now, how much detail do you go into? Johnny, let me explain fuel injection. You know, no. So God isn't concerned with that. He communicated to them in their own cosmological knowledge. The point is this. If we try to approach Genesis 1 with our modern view of the cosmos, we're in danger of changing the original meaning of the text. We're not honoring the Word of God. Genesis, again, is not written to us. It's written for us. 
to properly interpret Genesis and the rest of the Bible, we must interpret the cultural context. We, we can't impose our 21st century uh, culture on these passages. If we push our, push our 21st century understanding onto passages like uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we're not going to understand the original intent of the author. <clears throat> so here's some key things to take away from all this. And I think I, I'm doing this because if you don't understand, if you, if, you come with a different, if you come with a 21st century approach to the book of Genesis and make it read like it was written three weeks ago, you're never going to understand it because it wasn't written that way. Here are some key points to take away. Number one, Genesis has no comment on most of our science cosmic questions. It has no comment. It's not answering those. Genesis 1 was written to a people who saw creation as functional, not physical. In other words, to them, existence, see, to, the, to, to us, existence is all about physical. How did it come about? How did it happen? What, what, what brought it to, you know, we use words like the Big Bang. We, use, we talk about the expanding universe. We talk about black holes. We talk about all this stuff. And, and we're trying to get our, our fingers on it. In that, it, it, this culture, it was all about function. They, they just cared about the function. They didn't care about how. And think about it. When you read the book of Genesis, if you've been doing your reading, you read through there, how does it describe how God made things? And God said, let there be light. Okay, could you give me a little more detail? <laughs> it just, he spoke and it was. So it's not trying to describe how he did it. That's not the point. And yet most of our questions, how did it happen? How did it happen? How did it happen? Doesn't say, doesn't care. It's really all about function. Now, I want to talk about the overall theme of the book of Genesis and really the overall theme of the Bible. Because this is really important to understand it. Because, you know, if you say, well, what's the Bible all about? I don't know. Hopefully, if you don't know that, you'll walk out here today and say, I know what the Bible's about. That's one thing I know. Here it is. This is a little long. It's a little lengthy, but I think it, and I think it's in your notes, but let me read it to you. God, for some unknown reason, chose to be with man. He provided a perfect environment where he could walk, be with man. Adam, the first man, when given an opportunity, chose to be his own God. The rest of the Bible is a story of how God would restore this relationship in spite of man's continual and constant rebellion. That's the story of the Bible. Now, how does Genesis 1 and 2 fit into this overall theme? Well, simply this. Genesis 1 and 2 sets the table. It, it, it is God creating this perfect environment so that he and man, Adam and Eve, could walk together and have intimate, close, personal fellowship with one another. God wanted to be with man. They had an open and personal relationship, and that's what it's all about. Now, what we want to do now is we want to actually jump into Genesis. We want to look a little bit at Scripture but I'm going to give you a pattern, and I want you to think there are seven days of creation. And I want you to think of the, the seven days of creation like this. I want you to think of the first three days, and then the, the second three days, so days one, two, and three, four, five, and six, and then day seven. So we'll have a, we'll have a couplet, is it a couplet, one, two, and three? We'll have uh, four, five, and six, and then we'll have day seven. I think I have it in your notes. But this is where we're going to jump into Scripture, so I've encouraged you to bring your Bibles. I'm no longer going to put the verses up on the screen. You're going to have to open 
this book up. Or pull out your phone or your Android or whatever. Yeah, pull out whatever. Uh, but we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 1. And it's on... Pa- I thought I had the page down. Well, I didn't put the page down because it's like page 4 of the chair Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you don't have your phone and you don't have a Bible on it, uh, page 4 of the chair Bible and you'll find the passage that I'll be reading. Verse 3 says, well, let me read, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the the surface of the waters. And then verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that light was good, and that he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening and morning came, uh, marking the first day. Now, what is God doing here, day one? God is causing a cosmic separation. He's separating light from darkness. By the way, all God's doing through all of creation is he's bringing order from disorder. How did, what God is doing here is he's creating the basis for time, day and night, the basis for time. Now let's jump to day two, and we'll see what he does on day two. Verse six, then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. Again, this is their worldview that there are solids, not just on on the ground, but in the atmosphere. We know that there's not at this point. But notice, and that was what happened. God made uh, this space to separate the waters of the earth and the waters of the heavens. And God called the space sky. And evening and morning passed, marking the second day. What's going on? Well, we have meteorological separation. God separates the upper and lower waters. What is God creating here? He's creating weather. Okay? What determines our weather? Well, the weatherman will talk about the oceans, right? And the jet stream, right? When, when we know when that jet stream in America, at least, when that starts to go down, we know we're in for it. We're going to get cold. And, and so this is what's going on. He's creating weather. Notice chapter 1, verse 9. We see day 3. Then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so that dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. God called the dry ground land and the water seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every uh, form of seed-bearing plant and trees. And so we see the land produce vegetation. And I'm just kind of skimming through that. And it says in verse 13, an evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. What's he doing on day three? He's providing food. He's providing food. Now, these are days one, two, and three. What does he do on day one? Night and darkness. He separates night and darkness. What is he doing he's, on day two? He's separating the, the waters from the lower and upper. What's he doing on day three? He's separating the water from the land. He's creating spaces. Now, Notice what he does on day four. This is very interesting to me. Day four, starting at verse 14. Then God said, let, the great, let great lights appear in the sky to separate the day and the night. Let them mark off the seasons, days and years. Let the lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the sun and the moon, the larger one to govern the day, the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. 
And then it says in verse 19, and evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. So what did he do on day one? He separated the light from the darkness, right? What did he do on day four? He populated that space with the sun and the moon and the stars. You see how day one and day four correlate? First, he creates the space. And then, day, and, and then what does he do on day four? He populates the space. What's he do uh, on day two? On day two, remember, he separated the waters of the upper waters and the lower waters, right? What does he do on day five, which corresponds to day two? Verse 20, then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with the birds of every kind. So that God created sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the waters and every sort of bird, um, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good and he blessed the day and evening passed and morning came. So what is God doing in day uh, five? What did he do in day two? He separated the waters, the upper sky and the lower waters. Now, what's he doing on day five? He's populating the sky. He's putting the birds up in the sky. What's he doing in the waters? He's putting the, 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 the marine life in the waters. He's populating. In other words, days one, th- two, and three, he's creating the spaces. Days four, five, and six, he's populating those with the actors of those spaces. Now, let's look at day six. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, every, every, uh, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of some kind, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 26, and God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals. And then verse 27, it says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't have time to go in on the whole image of God thing. That's a whole, I could do a whole series of messages on that, how we are image bearers and, and all the implications that has. All I want you to see is this. On day three, what did he do? He separated the land from the water. What does he do on day six? He populates the land. He puts the actors on the land, the animals and, and man. And man, what is man supposed to do? He's supposed to be the, the caretaker of all of the creation. So we come to day seven. And most of the time in the past, as I've heard day seven, it's like, okay, that's kind of like... like Okay, God didn't know what to do on day seven, so he kind of just sat around, put his feet up, and took a rest. He said, okay, uh, yeah, I guess I'm done, you know? And I think that couldn't be more wrong. Notice verse uh, chapter 2. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed on the seventh day. God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy because it was the day when God rested from all of his work of creation. Now, we usually look at creation or the seventh day and we say, oh, that's just God resting. It's, it's, it's kind of an off day. It's a don't know what to do, you know. No, 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 no. It's the crescendo of creation. Here's what's going on in day seven. The whole cosmos of creation is God's temple, but the Garden of Eden is a sanctuary. And God resting means that everything is ready for the presence of God. And on day seven, God joins himself to his creation. When I mean joining, I mean he becomes a guest 
And he walks with Adam and Eve. And he begins to have a relationship with, the, with these people. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is taking up residence in his temple on day 7. It's not a break in the action. It's the pinnacle of creation. It's the pinnacle. Now, I, there was a professor uh, when I was at Moody, John Walton, and he used a good illustration to kind of ties this all together. And he said the best way to think of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is to think of it as a factory. And so what is going on in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, in days 1 through 3, the first three days, what is, what is God doing? Well, if it, we were thinking of a factory, he's putting down the foundation. He's putting the walls up. He's creating the offices. He's creating the production line. He's hooking the power up. He's creating all the infrastructure for the company. No one has been hired yet. There's no employees. There's no product. There's no nothing. There's just a building. One day there was nothing. The Spirit hovered over the open field and there was nothing there. And then after day three, there's a building and it's all hooked up and ready to go. So what does he do on days four, five, and six? Well, on days four, five, and six, the employees are assigned their positions, their offices, their cubicles. They're told to whom they report. They know the, their place, their job within the company. Their workday is determined by the clock, day and night. And they are expected to be productive. The foreman, that would be Adam, is been put in charge of the plant, and it's now ready for operation. But before the plant moves into operation, the owner must arrive and move into his office. What's day seven? The owner comes and flips the switch of the plant, and creation is finished. Now, what's the crescendo? The crescendo is God is now dwelling with man in a perfect environment. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is about. It's not about, or the literal 20, it's not about all the, it's not, it is about God created a perfect place so that he could spend time with man. And days 1, 2, and 3, and 3, 4, and 5 go together like that. 1, 2, and 3 sets the space, 3, 4, and 5 populates the space. God comes in, throws the switch, the factory is ready to work. That's what it's about. Now, you see the movement because as you begin Genesis 1, remember I read that verse in verse 2. It says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And what does it say? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we have disorder. And out of all of that, God brings order to the universe. And he creates a perfect place so that he could dwell with man. That's what creation is all about. God wanting to dwell with man. So God is resting with his completed creation. He's moved into his office. He's taken a non-functional cosmos, and he's given it meaning, purpose, and his very presence. Now, that's a lot of stuff. I think, though, that there is a mystery in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's not the mystery that we often think about. In fact, I think it's a mystery that we never ask or we never wonder about. We, for our 21st century mind, I don't think it ever occurs to us. Maybe it has to you, but most people it doesn't. And that is this. Why would God want to do this? Why would God want to dwell with us? Why would God want to dwell with men and women, Adam and Eve and us? Why? I mean, that to me is the most amazing mystery of Genesis 1 and 2. 
It's not how God created the, the heavens and the earth. It's not the amazing beauty and magnificence of, of the universe. It's not that, that, wow, what a beautiful building. No, the real mystery to me is, why would God want to be with man? No, I don't have the answer. If you're waiting for me to give you the answer, I don't know. It, to me, it's a mystery. I don't know why God does. But here's, here's, here's something that's even more incredible. Think about this. God gets nothing from us. We have nothing to offer him. He's not lonely. God's not sitting there going, I'm so lonely. What am I going to do today? He is a trinity. Three persons with perfect unity, support, and love. And he's God. There's just the definition of God is you lack nothing and you can do anything. Why in the world would God want to be with us? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why God wants to be with us, but it does tell us that he does indeed want to be with us. It says that he wants to be with us, and he wants to be with us so much that he will go to incredible lengths to do so, that he will even offer his own son to die on a cross so that we could be with him. It's amazing. And that his son willingly went to that cross so that we could be with him. And this is the whole theme of the Bible. Remember when Jesus was born, what did they say? You will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Now, look at how it all ends. Genesis 21. This you'll turn, if you turn to 961, or excuse me, Revelation 21. Uh, 961 in your chair Bible. It's the last book of the Bible. But notice what happens here, because this isn't just God starts out and then moves on to something else. This is a theme all the way through the Scripture. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. Again, 961. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven... And the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now listen to what is said here, because this is, in, to me, it's stunning. In the context of what we've all looked at. I heard a shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now, what? Among His people. He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them. Do you see that? (laughs) What God is doing here is He's accomplished what He started in the garden was a perfect environment, and He gave man a free will. We'll talk about that next week. And man chose to go his own way and lost paradise, lost the presence of God. So all through the Bible, what is God doing? He's finding a way so that we could again regain paradise. And in the book of Revelation, what's the crescendo? God comes down once again to dwell with man. It's incredible. Again, I don't know why. I don't know why he wants to. But he does. So here's what I want you to hear. For some unknown reason, God loves you and wants to be with you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But you can reject Him, just like Adam did. 
And that is what we're going to be looking at next week. But today, there's still time. And you you need to walk out of here knowing that there's a God in heaven who loves you and wants to be with you. And if you'll call upon him, he will come into your life and he will give you the purpose and the meaning. And, And just like Jenny said, he will fill that hole in your heart that you've been trying to fill with everything else. I like the words of Third Day. They write these words in one of their songs. There is hope for the helpless, rest for the weary, love for the broken heart. There is grace and forgiveness, mercy and healing. He'll meet you wherever you are. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Folks, the rest of this book is about how God is going to bring us back to him. And the way he does it is through Jesus. The Bible says in the New Testament, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is just the start of the book of Genesis. The theme carries all the way through Scripture. God wants to be with us. But, as we'll look at next week, we also have a free will. We can say no. And maybe you'll leave this place and say no to God. I hope you won't. I hope you'll say, God, I want this year more than any time ever to be with you daily. I hope that's your prayer. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Our Father, it is stunning, amazing, and beyond our comprehension that you would desire to be with us and not just be with us, but pursue us at great cost to you. It's amazing. I pray, Father, that no, no one would leave this place without knowing that you care about them, that you have a plan for them, that if they'll call upon your son, there's hope, there's freedom, There's forgiveness. There's life. May we find that life, Father. And as we begin this journey through your word, Father, help us to see you, to see Jesus. And may it be more than just an exercise. May it change our hearts and lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.